0: Rock and roll bedtime stories, it's a bonus episode. My name's Brian. Hey, it's Murdoch. Usually we're very uh we're very planned. We've got a lot of notes. We've done a lot of research, but today for a bonus episode, Murdoch and I kept texting each other about a, a certain series of happenings involving a certain musical person and I was like, Why don't we just have a conversation about this? So we're just having a conversation and you're invited in to be a part of it. You you're always invited in to be part of the conversation if you want to, you know, type us an email that's easy you can do that at we are the story guys at gmail.com but today we're talking about a backwards baseball cap we're talking about doing it all for the nookie we're talking about our relationship to limp biscuit i we, we should t- say why we're talking about limp biscuit i, I biscuit is like kind of weirdly back and there's been two things yes. that pushed them back into the the popular conscious conscience <laughs> and me, having me and murdoch talking about them together Um uh, one of those things is the obvious Lollapalooza uh, event that happened where they showed up and he was dressed with the wig and like the whole thing is strange. I,
1: I thought the whole I thought that was one of your things was going to be it's the new Fred look where he he's got on like
0: high waters too like the pants aren't long enough also. I, I still don't understand like it's a costume, right? Like I'm just very confused cuz he's that's I, not his hair. Well, we'll talk about this. This is all part of the. This is all part of what I like, kind of strangely admire about Fred Durst. All of a sudden, okay. The other thing that brings him back for people to kind of talk about and reminds us before we get too comfortable with the new Fred Durst is the Woodstock ninety nine documentary that that went up on HBO Max a few weeks ago. I am hoping if you are listening to this, you've had a chance to to see it. Uh, it's an interesting film. Let's start there. What, what was your reaction to watching Woodstock 99?
1: Um, It was, I was like physically uncomfortable. So how much do you remember
0: about Woodstock 99?
1: I remember the next day and I lived in New York city when it happened. So I just remember the next day seeing either, it was like the New York post or something. It wasn't like in a real newspaper, but I saw that they had set everything on fire I didn't I, I didn't watch the pay-per-view. I didn't do any of that. So I didn't really know what happened. I'm one of those people that learned about what happened at the event after the event. Right. Um so and I mean I know someone that played at the event.
0: Um Yeah, so what's but, that story? You know somebody that was was actually on one of the stages?
1: Yeah, this guy, Dave Hoffman, he's a fantastic uh guy. He has like a really cool record label, like a thing that works with like a whole bunch of record labels, and it's all like really like the most awesome, innovative music. Like, he has the best job. But anyway, he was in this band called Ulu, and they were like a jazz, a free jazz instrumental band. And someone like up there where they were throwing the concert, they had played around somewhere, and someone really liked them, and they had a local stage, like a New York, whatever stage. And they get there and they show up like it's like this military barracks like on all the cement and they're like, oh my God, this is so crazy hot and this this is out of control. And then they go to stake out the stage and they realize that their stage isn't even inside
0: the event itself. (laughs) Well, that seems par for the course after watching the documentary. I will say this, right? let's 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 talk about the documentary for a second. So it's it's a Bill Simmons production and I'm a big fan of Bill Simmons in terms of him as a media guy. He has this website now called The Ringer. He did Grantland. I'm a big Ringer guy, so yeah. I was very hyped about this from the Ringer perspective because I think they do good work. I also have to admit something else which is that I took a graduate level course at the end of college and I worked on a documentary film about a rock band. Um, and so I think about the reason we have this this jokey riff between us about documentary films is I tend to just be like too harsh of a critic on documentary films. Not because I know everything about them because I took one freaking class and created one once, but just because I think a lot about what goes into creating them. And I just i'm a har- I'm a harsh critic. And so, yeah,
1: I, and I totally get it. And I have watched some some documentaries, Brian, where I get down to you know ninety minutes. and you get down to like the last twenty, twenty five minutes, and you realize that, like, they've kind of like make made a left turn to like just get this thing done or something like yeah. it just falls apart yeah. like the the thing and and so i i get that and i see that sometimes but I, i'm always i'm i'm interested in watching documentaries about the subjects that i like so i i sometimes can see past like if if it's a little crappy if i'm still interested in
0: you know the who, whoever the subject. I mean, it's like anything. Is. If you like the subject matter, if you're, or if you like the art form, you're willing to give it a lot more grace. And I get it. I do like documentary film, and I did like, I, I, I liked the experience of watching this film because it's about rock and roll, and it's about something I sort of quasi remember, and it's about a bunch of bands that. I mean, there's a lot. There is so much footage because of a couple things, but one of them is the pay per view that you mentioned. So it was like professionally filmed. And yeah. And so there's a lot for them to pull from, but I just, I have some problems with the creation of it. I just think the story they're trying to tell, as you just kind of said, I think it kind of falls apart in the third act, if not before.
1: Well, here's, here's one thing I'd like to, I I don't necessarily, uh, yeah, I mean, it it felt a little wonky at, at places, but I will tell you where is a glaring omission and I love how obnoxious I sound. Like I'm almost like an upset NPR podcaster. <laughs> the glaring admission in this documentary is the set from Nine Inch Nails, which was legendary and unbelievable. And it is fascinating. And it's like, it's like watching the prince playing, at, playing while my guitar gently weeps. Like it is a goosebump, Inducing experience watching That whole thing They basically got into a fight in the mud right before Like it wasn't anything weird They weren't like you know all messed up on drugs Or what you know And then they just showed up on stage all with Mud all over them And that performance I think That was the best performance of the weekend so, it's
0: left it's left out, yeah, it's like hardly even mentioned, and so what if you haven't seen it, let me just tell you that basically the premise and having listened to bill Simmons talk about just things in general and knowing kind of how he how he likes to like armchair hypothesize, I believe what this was when at some point there were guys in a room that said, you know i I think we could draw a line directly from woodstock ninety nine and then to 15 to 20 years later to the political climate in the U S and that's sort of what they try to do is to say everything that's happened about fake news, about disrespect, about white anger, all that stuff started basically with Fred Durst. I mean, that's sort of what the documentary says. Do you, do you think that's an unfair statement for kind of quantifying the documentary that way? I I do feel like he is the
1: um he is the bad guy character in in the film. I I, I don't think that it's I I believe it's John Shear is how you say his name is the he's he's the guy that's up there um you know with Michael Lang like yeah. Michael oh, yeah, Lang's yeah. like Willy Wonka and then there's like the
0: old the guy that's right. like yeah it's like I need my tools back for the garage he is a and, he is a crusty old guy too, and he and he says some things uh, a couple of yeah. times that are real bad. Like someone should have pulled him off the camera before he started saying them about the women. And yeah, stuff. he said he Ooh. said that he said
1: something basically blaming women for how they were dressing or for taking off their clothes and blaming them for for that. And 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 then also, um, there's a there was a Facebook thread that I was following with this guy who I kind of knew and they were talking about Woodstock 99 and they had all these photos, uh, you know, I guess in the thread of like, they went and, you know, and hated it. It was really hot. And someone tagged someone and said, Hey, did you know that you're in the documentary where you ask, Ah, uh, John Shear. The question about the the women being assaulted. You know that and guy. She, and she and and she it was a, a a female reporter, and she did not know she was in the documentary. <laughs> and she's the person who throws the hardball question. Yeah, yeah, at him yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I know exactly what moment
0: you're talking about. There's yeah. two. There's two things in that press tent, and one of them is that guy who's just being a jerk. And then they he like there's a takedown of him. But then there's the woman who really is, is, I mean, very justifiably pushing for some answers about the way women are being treated. And yeah, that's a pretty amazing moment.
1: Yeah. And, um, you know, for, for people, you, you haven't seen it. It, it is, it, I mean, it is a thing I think it's worth watching. It, and it is interesting that MTV went there to be like, you know, we're going to cover it and, 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 they were, you know, kind of uh, like physically assaulted with stuff and people were throwing things at them. And so they reported it as they saw it. <laughs> and then that that guy, um, also the that guy, John Shear, whatever his name is, that, you know, put on the festival, he basically went after MTV for their inaccurate portrayal of what the festival was like.
0: Yeah. I mean, that's, it, that's the other thing is that it be, it devolves into this thing where they're blaming the media about how it was like, look really MTV, but then everybody's kind of taking the cue from MTV about in the moment that MTV is reporting it in a way that isn't really true. And I will right. say that watching a lot of that footage, you do start to realize that that, festival was so big that you and i could have gone separately and had two very very different experiences we both would have been very hot and we both would have seen a lot of chaos but we wouldn't have seen the same level of chaos if we weren't in that one area like that really the fires happened at one area during one show um and so yes it's the pictures are crazy and the whole thing is the footage is nuts and yes there was clearly like a breakdown but we're talking about like the size of a small town. I mean, this army base was huge. And people were walking miles between stages. I mean, so you were not having the exact same experience. And I saw that even in some online forums and stuff where people were like, I just watched this thing. And uh and it was kind of like a ringer affiliated um uh, Facebook group. And they were like, I just watched this thing. That is not the experience I had at all. Like I had a great time at Woodstock ninety nine, right? So Obviously, you can't represent everyone's viewpoint, but it's just it's worth that
1: that viewpoints in the documentary, too.
0: Yeah. And you ask most people, most people are going to say they had a great time. Here's here's the other thing I thought was interesting about it. I mean, I have some like silly takeaways and I do want to talk about Fred Durst, but I want to talk about some of the people who chose to be in the documentary in terms of. People that were there that weekend. Uh Michael Lang is like an American folk hero. Like he's just hilarious. All the footage they have from the original Woodstock movie of him riding around on his motorcycle smoking weed is hilarious. Yeah. And yeah, then he's like he's, you get to see him as an old guy in real time, which is hilarious. Also, they what was the Carson Daly interview? That's not even an interview. Like, did they just take clips of him talking on other shows? Because you I, never see yeah. Carson Daly, so it's only yeah. audio. Right. Yeah, they, so Carson Daly, yeah. So and I guess because of TRL. You get you get Dave, what's the other guy? The other MTV guy who you get a lot of. What's his name? Uh, oh, I don't know. I Dave, it's Dave something. It's the other the other MTV guy yeah. that was from that period who even says at the time, I was really glad that Carson Daly overshadowed me when we got to Woodstock. I'm glad that, that he was the face of MTV at the time because it made my life easier. Then there's like, here's... <laughs> Here's my favorite beef of all of the artists that performed the one guy who's still really pissed off about everything is Moby. And yeah. Moby gets like 30 minutes of screen time in this 90 minute documentary. He is in it so much. And there's original footage from the bus from when he pulls in and he's talking crap about all the bands. And like, that's in the documentary. He like gave them that video of him on his bus being like, who's Creed? <laughs> hey, I, I did read after
1: I saw the documentary that some people had, a bad experience in the tent during Moby's set because they said it was like... (laughs) It was like the people who had just finished seeing Metallica, I guess, I don't know which night is which night, but had just finished seeing the headliner and they just literally came over to that tent um, and then they were taking Ecstasy and drinking and being like kind of like agro-aggressive stuff too and like that's not how that whole those whole shows go so i think that there might have been some you know he doesn't talk about that but some people probably had that negative experience well I, i think i think that the i think the festival was a disaster so that's my take that's that's my
0: I have a pretty low baseline on what, like, how a festival is a disaster. So, also, I love the offspring. We've talked about my love of the offspring on this show before, and this is, we differ in that love. But those poor guys, man, what they should, they should not have agreed to go on camera. They should have done the Carson Daly audio only interview. They are looking real rough. And I don't want to be rude in case there's medical conditions involved, but. Whew. You know who's not looking rough in that documentary? Jewel has aged very nicely. Oh, yeah, With man. With the hat and like the Afghan scarf. And like, I don't know what she was wearing, but I was into it. I was like, welcome back, Jewel. You yeah, should have. Uh, I mean, you know, uh, yeah. I always liked Jewel, but
1: <laughs> I was always a fan. So it was her and
0: Alanis and
1: Michelle Crow.
0: That was it. Was that, the three, that was the three female artists. That was the three women. Yeah. Yeah, it's and yeah, that that whole thing is uh, also like Jewel on Sunday at five, like after that weekend. Like, wow. Yeah. I mean, did she do foolish games? Like, where's that footage? And and you know what? Like, so and then the whole the whole thing
1: kind of ties up to kind of make Fred Durst sort of the the bad guy. Lent Biscuit is a bad guy. And really, after watching the documentary, And having some time to reflect on it, I realized that the other guy who put on the festival with Michael Lang's the bad guy because he's this completely insensitive prick that doesn't seem to understand to have any sensitivity level and what it's like for people to be assaulted at a music festival that you put on. I'm telling you that the person who is not the bad guy wrote... I came into this world as a reject. Look into these eyes. Then you'll see the size of the flames dwelling on the past. It's burning on my brain. But he only Fred Durst can say that just like Fred Durst. And it's it, it's it's totally weird. I, I don't even like the inflection in his voice to me is kind of annoying too. Uh and then I I absolutely love break stuff. I think that's a great song. It's completely ridiculous. And uh, I think Nookie's an alright song, um, for sure. And I like watching the guitar player. I I, I And, and I, I think it's interesting because for people that... Brian and I have talked about this. For people that haven't seen Biscuit's performance at, at Chicago, at Lollapalooza, they ask... Put your hand in the air if this is your first Limp Biscuit concert. And everyone puts their hands in the air. And it's like, how does a band that hasn't put out a record in eons, who went through like the most gigantic PR disaster that a band could go through, and then can show up at a music festival and play in front of 20,000 people and just tear the place
0: apart? Well it's it, it, okay it's, so it's, they tear it apart by being the opposite of what they were in 99 like the most interesting part of this to me it's like fascinating and this is why these two things go together and they also like you know 90 the the documentary came out i don't know what like 2 weeks before Lollapalooza 3 weeks something like that so it was very close yeah and so he's they're kind of back in the news and people are talking about the beginning and then they it's like, oh my god, they're on the bill at Lollapalooza. What's going to happen? And instead of coming out and doing this agro aggressive thing, he comes out dressed like a dad, which I which I believe is a stunt for a because that last song they play, which they oh, just dad have Values. the DJ play, is called "Dad Vibes," right? So, Dad Vibes, yeah. I think Sorry. it's I think it's all a ploy for new music, which, first of all, is smart. And second of all, the way they did that, where he came out and they just played the song and then he handed out t shirts and merch in the audience, like they they played this as a very classy band whilst still singing lyrics that were incredibly aggressive and offensive. But watching them, they look like gentlemen. Like it's it's just super bizarre. Even West Borland in what a appears to me to be blackface. Like no one's talking about that? I I don't think
1: I don't I, I took a look and I don't think it's necessarily blackface. What is it? Like but, a monkey mask? I, like
0: I'm very confused by what he's wearing.
1: But but I have seen him what would be considered blackface, but it's not just blackface. He paints his entire torso and arms and legs. He paints his entire body black. I've seen that and that is unreal on how they, they do the lighting in the show makes a complete difference to what you're watching all of a sudden. Because all of a sudden, this human being is this shadowy creature, you know, and shiny.
0: And so, fascinating. Well, that and, and, and there's just, like, it's just riffage. Like, I mean, I'm not saying West Portland's not a good guitar player, but it's it's all pedals and riffs. Yeah, yeah. Do you know, do you know a parent, he's in a
1: band called Big Dumb Face? Oh, yeah. And do you know about Big Dumb Face?
0: Uh-huh.
1: Okay, yeah. And and the way someone described it to me initially, and, and I kind of go with it, is like, it's like metal ween. <laughs> it like, it doesn't take itself very seriously. And that's kind of up front, right? But so- then it can be really hardcore and then a little
0: goofy, too. So here's here's the premise that I I'm starting to cultivate very unofficially here. Have have we just completely misunderstood Fred Durst as a pop cultural figure? Have we misunderstood stood him? When he got on
1: stage at the VMAs with Christina Aguilera, like, come on, yeah, it, it like do you remember like seeing that and you wanted to gouge your eyes out? Like I saw I remember seeing that on TV and being like, "Man, that's totally weird. That guy wants to be a star."
0: Well, here's the thing though, which I, he did. I think you can I think you can make a case on paper to a certain degree that there's like this alternative history of Fred Durst where he is actually a genius and has been has been playing all of us for like 25 years and that every move has been calculated and that it's all added up to where he is now. Now I, I think you, there's some holes in that argument because it's not like they've been super successful and had a great time probably for, for a good chunk of the last 15 years. But I, you know, there are things about him. I mean, first of all, let's, let's for right now, Let's look at their their response to the Delta variant. Like, again, talking about being classy and way ahead of the game. They were like one of the first bands to be like, you know what? This isn't a good idea. We had this whole thing. Now, are they covering up lack of ticket sales or something? I don't know. Maybe. But the way they're handling it, either they, they have invested in some amazing PR and marketing or Durst has has just learned a lot and has become like the smartest man in showbiz like it's just I, this whole thing is just it's messing with my head.
1: Yeah, and the thing the thing is is that if if you learn more about Fred Durst, which I'm I'm guilty of I'm know in the past I have thrown m- massive shade at Fred Durst, but I know a lot more about Fred Durst now, and like this has been a long tail work like, job for this guy to become successful. Like, he was a ex-military guy. Like, he wasn't into music, and he was, like, doing freestyle rap. Like, he was doing that before he was in a, a rock band at all. And he had other incarnations of other things before Lent Biscuits. So he
0: was trying to make it. So... So, I mean, lots of things about him that I didn't know. One, he way before i mean like when when limp biscuit became limp biscuit he had a like seven year old kid like he he became a dad at the age of 20 Mm -hmm. uh so throughout their whole career he has like his kid is currently in her 30s um yeah i know do that math for a second also the other thing about fred durst is that he really was sort of a puppet master for a, a large portion of the early 2000s radio rock movement. <laughs> like, he's responsible single-handedly for a lot of that and people just I'm on forget the that. inside. I'm, he's, that. he's responsible for stain. He's responsible Stained. for Puddle of Mud. And yep. you can laugh about Puddle of Mud, but those guys were huge. And they had a huge outsized impact on that scene. And they made a whole lot of money for a whole lot of people. And then the other thing people don't remember about Fred Durst is he's had a whole film career behind yeah. the camera. Right. He, You know he made a movie with Jesse Eisenberg? He made a movie with John Travolta. He made a movie with Ice Cube. And he was on House. Like oh, I didn't know that. That's weird. But now, I remember in the early 2000s, uh maybe mid 2000s having some sh- trial of showtime or hbo or something and to c- coming i think it was maybe feeding my oldest kid yeah the timeline the timeline checks out i bet it was i was feeding my oldest kid like in the middle of the night and i remember turning on the television and being like what is population 436 and this was the first film he ever made uh oh, he, wow. and he co-starred in it uh I don't think he directed it. I think his his directorial debut was The Education of Charlie Banks, which is that Jesse Eisenberg movie. But Population 436 he was in. And I remember just middle of the night with a bottle in my hand and a baby in my hand being like what am I watching? Why <laughs> Fred Durst is in this movie. I, you know, and I also think strategically a lot of these like fake feuds that he had with Christina Aguilera and Britney Spears like yeah. for the time were like perfectly engineered. Like now oh, yeah. now it's very in bad taste, right? And and we look back and we're like, you know, that that's creepy. But if you think about the mid 90s and if you think about how those women were treated by everyone, right? right? Everyone. I mean, do you remember the genie in a bottle video? You were a little yeah. you're a little older than me, so I don't know if it did the things to you that it did to me but ho oh, that was Yeah. R- yeah it was definitely
1: uh that was definitely some material but I also like for me like at the time when all that was happening, I was like, is Fred Durst is he like going out with Brittany and
0: Christina at the same time this is amazing gossip right right It's terrific right so like this is my thing about the argument on paper. you could go back and say. All of these things where people would say, here's all the reasons Fred Durst is an is an a-hole. You could actually go back and draw a direct line to say, these are all the reasons he's a genius. Like, if, if all of these things were intentional, and I'm not saying they all were, but if they were all intentional, you know, I mean, if you think about the Aguilera thing that you mentioned early, about the MTV Video Music Awards, they perform, living it up, Christine Aguilera is there. Whatever song that is. <laughs> yeah. Um, Durst, <laughs> Durst remarks, like people basically say it sucks. And then he and the press says, well, I did it all for the nookie. Like that's a calculated response. Yeah, yeah that happened. I remember that. Right? I mean, it's, you know, I mean, also, if Les Claypool publicly defends you after Woodstock 99, you got to be doing something right. What did Claypool say? Well, he told the San Francisco Examiner that, they quote, Woodstock was just Durst being Durst. His attitude <laughs> is no press is bad press, so he brings it on himself. Still, he's a great guy. Right there, he says it. And and the, there's
1: those stories about Durst being a great guy. Like having Aaron Lewis from Stain stop a, sh- a solo show because someone yells something bad about Fred Durst and he has to explain to the entire house about what a great guy Fred Durst is. So it, it's interesting the, the dual things he has. What he doesn't have, man, and this is why one reason I could say as is, is a devil's advocate, he's not a genius, is like they don't have a catalog of music. So and one of one of the in their catalog one is a is a cover of George Michaels Faith. Hey, and they used to come out of a toilet.
0: Yeah. Oh, yeah. How,
1: yeah. how How? was it dreamt and then decided that that was a great
0: idea? And they, they did it. I mean, if we need more marks against him just as a person, we can play both sides of this coin. You know, he in 2015 was talking about getting a Russian passport, um, and he wrote in a letter that Vladimir Putin is a great guy with clear moral principles and a nice person.
1: Oh my God! What? Yeah.
0: What? Uh, also, during the 2018, ca- and th- this is this is not a judgment on him. This just sucks. Did you know that he lost everything in the California yeah. wildfires? Yeah, and he
1: didn't. He didn't. He didn't go to the press and didn't tell everybody. And he didn't.
0: Yeah. So, pe- yeah, he didn't tell anybody. But yeah, he lost everything. But there's, you know, we've talked about the obvious feuds, the Christina and the Brittany and the, you know, the TRL feuds. But there's some really good ones buried in his repertoire. Uh, did you know that <laughs> we've never talked about Placebo on this show? Did you know he started a feud with Placebo? The band? The, yeah. the awesome band Placebo? Yeah. Mm. Wow, dude. I love Placebo. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, I, he basically got in some fight backstage with Brian Mulko and then went on stage and got his crowd to chant Placebo Sucks prior to their performance. Oh my gosh, that's Uh, funny. Yeah, ridiculous. Um, Did you? I mean, of course, there was some back and forth with Eminem. That's a more famous one. Yeah. Um, There's a whole thing with uh, Shaggy Two Dope from Insane Clown Posse, but again, very, (laughs) very on brand. Like if you're gonna if you're gonna create uh, an image, you get in a fight with Shaggy Two Dope like that. The placebo one seems like that was miscalculated. Um, do, Do you remember this when in '99 he was? Insulting fans of the band Slipknot. No, he referred no. to them as fat and <laughs> ugly kids. <laughs> oh my God! What a what a what a terrible thing to say! Uh, wow. Uh, Trent Reznor uh, repeatedly has insulted Fred Durst. Um, even though Durst has cited Nine Inch Nails as an influence. Uh, yeah, they co- they've they done Nine Inch Snails
1: covers in concert and have played Russia more than once,
0: for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, a, the Trent Reznor's thing is, it's all about the art, right? And he says, Fred Durst makes terrible art. But is it all about the art? And I, I'm not going to, to fall into the hole to say that it's all about the nookie. I'm not going to say it. But I, I think it's all about the... I think, it, I don't know if the money as much as the whole package, right? Like, it's about creating this thing. And if you know, if you go in saying, here's what I'm going to do and how I'm going to do it, I'm going to create this persona and I'm going to play this character. Or maybe at a certain point in his career, he's decided, you know, some of those accidental missteps I made, I, I screwed up, but it's never too late to start over and now in 2020 2021 i'm going to create this new version of myself that's this weird classy guy in a weird costume promoting my album by handing out merch like it's 1998 i you know i don't know
1: Yeah, well, when I've seen, I I will. So I haven't said this out loud to another human being, and now I have to say it out loud to you and everyone that's listening. So I am totally guilty of going down a YouTube wormhole watching Limp Biscuit shows. So, and I have done it (laughs) when they're playing festival shows, like in the last decade or so, and they destroy, they are like. They are just can't they know how to play a festival audience? He's just a really good frontman, and that's kind of what I think it comes down to. I think he, I think he just really knows how to be a good frontman, and well, and it is like there is nothing sophisticated about that music. So, whatever Trent Reznor is saying, like all right, well sure, okay, well
0: I did not think ABBA
1: really had great music either, but it was catchy. <laughs> well,
0: if you're if, if the thing we're taking away from this is Fred Durst may be smart, may not be, but essentially he's just really a good front man, it does tie together the two things we're talking about. Woodstock 99 and Lollapalooza 2021. Um, I, I will end here, though. Did you hear that one of the more recent headlines about Fred Durst is that he tried to he tried to buy an action figure of himself on eBay and got outbid?
1: No. No.
0: <laughs> That's a true story. That's embarrassing. <laughs> I mean, hey, the guy doesn't own anything anymore. It's all his stuff went up in flames two years ago. He's trying to get it back. He's trying to get his toys back. Wow. Should I
1: be feeling bad? Should I be feeling good? It's kind of sad. I'm laughing stock of the neighborhood.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know a lot of Limp Biscuit lyrics, dude. I had no idea. Definitely win if we were to go head-to-head and try to quote Limp Biscuit lyrics. You know, the here. Here's the one that does it for me. And this is so dumb and embarrassing, but you know what what I love is uh when they rap over the Mission Impossible theme song. <laughs> it's my favorite, Mark. It's my favorite. You love that. And I love and I like break stuff. So. Hey, tell us what you like. We are the story guys at gmail.com. Thanks for hanging out with the, for a bonus episode this week. Uh we will be back next week with another well researched, less off the cuff. A uh, full fledged episode and until then what do people need to keep doing? Keep telling the Because right now I'm dangerous. <laughs> What's <Yeah>. like what <laughs> quotes he gonna do? What little biscuit lyric is he gonna end on? That was good. That was <laughs> rewarding <laughs>